Welcome to The Wondering Mind, a podcast where we have candid conversations in hopes to break mental health stigmas and normalize speaking up about our mental health. Through this podcast, we will connect you to a diverse range of folks from all around the world who have struggled with their mental health, but have learned to weather through the storm. By listening to their stories, you may begin to feel empowered, less alone, and you may discover new ways that will help you navigate through your own mental health struggles. So sit back, relax, and remember, everyone's story matters. Are you having a hard time finding a good therapist for you? Matcha Health is the best match in healthcare. They believe in a future where you can be more open with your therapists and doctors, where you can look forward to seeing them because you know and feel that they care about you, and that no matter what insurance you have, you can find someone quickly and that you can have a long-lasting relationship with. Matcha's mission is to eliminate the shopping around for a therapist experience. They use data, science, and personality tests to match and create the most successful relationship seen in healthcare. They make it a point to create a diverse and vibrant space for people and providers to grow and a place where you can find help at any time in your healthcare journey. For a free first session, Use code YAY000 at checkout when you visit www.machahealth.io. Welcome to the Wondering Mind podcast. I'm your host, Emily Elizabeth. Joining me today is Tanisha Shedden, and she is a clinical social worker, therapist, and she currently works in the school system and we're going to talk all about her journey with mental health and being adopted. There's all kinds of stuff to your story that we're going to get into. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> very happy to have you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to just chat. Yeah, lots of moving pieces, lots of little things that I feel like add up and make me who I am today. And it's exciting to just be able to share that with you. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm so glad that you reached out and considered my show to tell your story. Because when I met with you for our pre-interview, I was honestly blown away by just the short snippets that you that you shared with me. I have not shared a story like yours before. I feel like a lot of folks have unique stories, obviously, but there's always like a common like theme or their you know commonalities but I feel like yours is just so unique and I think there's going to be a whole other realm of individuals that will will relate to it on a totally different level so I'm very excited that um that you're going to share it with us today thank you yeah I definitely you know wanted to come on your show because I think that you get you have really honest conversations with whoever you're with and just I love talking about mental health and advocating and all those fun things so as far as as the story goes 
where do you want me to start? (laughs) (laughs) Sort of the very beginning, you know, (laughs) it's just funny how that goes. But yes, I was adopted at birth. And that part of the story is actually like, kind of (laughs) cute the start of the story is actually kind of (laughs) cute depending on how you look at it but so my parents couldn't have kids and they adopted um a baby before and then they wanted another baby so they were looking into adopting me and you know it was a sweet part of the story they found my birth mother and they had her fly to their house in Utah and she met my family and really liked them and stayed with them up until I was born. My adoptive parents were there when I was born and was really good start to things. And then, you know, my birth mom went home to Louisiana where she's from and I stayed in Utah and I grew up there. And I think the first five years of my life were super like chill. There were things going on, but like I wouldn't really know I wouldn't really know but you know trouble started early (laughs) Mm. do you want to just get into that or yeah do you want me to start talking about all those things all the trouble we might as well because I think I guess we'll just end up with you becoming a therapist after all the things yeah that you've gone through so yeah if you're comfortable with that go for it yeah so When I was probably about four to five, that's when things started getting crazy. So, you know, my dad had a business with my grandpa and then they kind of split ways. I'm not positive on this, but I'm pretty sure that my dad committed fraud and that will become a theme later on for this story. But the main part is I became a victim of child perpetrated sexual abuse when I was like four or five. And it lasted until it was like, nine years old and then and then I think it happened again like after it was because it was like discovered like it was like caught in the act and then and then a bunch of stuff happened like you know uh, we went to the doctor and you know I was put in therapy and then you know everything was supposed to be okay but then you know that person was still in my life so it just didn't go well like as expected and I think the biggest thing is it was never like really reported to anything or nothing was really done about it yeah it was a significant like time in my life obviously and after that like I developed a speech impediment Hmm. and it was probably when I was in like first grade they like started testing me they thought I was deaf they're like why can't this girl talk right before it was discovered I'm kind of jumping (laughs) forward and back in the middle of things but like probably like first grade they thought they were like what's wrong with this girl every time she talks it's just so like I would like mumble almost and they Mm -hmm. were like we can't understand you and my parents were confused by this because they were like well she was talking just fine like she learned to talk at like 18 months what happened and so part of it was the trauma of and I think the shame I just stop being able to communicate effectively for a long time and I was in speech until I was in like sixth grade wow that's a long time yeah 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 I just like couldn't talk for a really long time and I remember like most of my childhood was kind of disassociating like I wasn't Mm -hmm. I don't remember being fully present like I remember as a little girl I would be like playing 
but like I feel like it was like always in the back of my mind and then just more and more stuff started to happen so my parents got divorced when I was nine and then I would go back and forth between my mom's house and my dad's house and when I talk about my mom and dad I'm talking about my parents that adopted me so I kind of go like back and forth between their houses and my dad was super unstable emotionally and financially so we moved just with my dad 17 times 17 (laughs) times how old are you um this was one nine to age 17 so nine until I moved out yeah so 17 times around the state of Utah and it was a lot (laughs) oh my god (laughs) I mean what was that like for you I mean having to so you literally changed schools and all that every single time you had to move so we didn't change schools because my mom was a school teacher and I just went to school with her so Mm -hmm. until sixth grade I didn't change schools and then seventh grade the boundaries were bigger so my dad would just move within those boundaries a lot Hmm. until I got to high school and then high school pretty much I was able to I don't know if they just didn't report address changes we only moved twice during high school I think and then uh I don't think we moved during middle school that was the longest I'd stayed anywhere and then before that so it was like the same area you just like he just kept moving to different like areas around the general like vicinity or whatever that you were currently living I mean even still though having to uproot everything like especially as an adolescent can really fuck you up yeah yeah because it was like insane I remember like begging my dad can we stay somewhere can we stay here longer can we stay here longer and I don't he would always just say something vague like we'll see like we'll see how daddy's job goes or Mm. and he had the same job during some of the time so Hmm. you know this is just to be discovered later, but like we realized that he would be doing, I have no idea what with the money and would just stop paying bills and would like, I think there's, I think there's fraud involved somewhere because Mm -hmm. he, these weren't houses always that we were renting. We bought at least like five of those houses, at least five or six of them. Yeah. And I'm like, I have no idea how, that's such so, a big process too to like go through that so many times so mm-hmm. frequently. Mm-hmm. I don't even know how credit even I don't even know how the credit wasn't destroyed or I know that my mom's was destroyed and then I think he would use his and then use my mom's and then he got remarried use his wife's and then use his oh, like okay. gotcha. just all these crazy things but we would stay somewhere like six months to a year, sometimes maybe two years, and then just move. And it was always, oh, like, you know, this isn't the right thing. Like, we can't afford to live here. Or, you know, daddy got a new job. Or just, it was always something. It was always something. And my mom, you know, got smart and moved out. Because I <laughs> one, oh, I have, like, such a foggy memory of this because I was so young. But, like, one year, I think or two years, I'll say, we moved to this little house that we were renting. And then we moved to a house that we bought. And then we bought another house because my dad claimed that the builder screwed him over. And we like, we built like two houses. And then that's when they got divorced. And then my mom got her own place. My dad had to rent this really, 
ghetto place that we were at. I didn't have a bed at that place. What? Um, Where were you sleeping? (laughs) On the floor? Uh, On a couch? We had a couch. We had a couch. Wow. My brother had a bed. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. Like, we moved into this house, and it was really ghetto, and we had beds at my mom's house. My dad hadn't gotten beds yet, and it was just odd because my mom was financially screwed. My mom had gotten paid right before and it was like right after Christmas and stuff and she'd gotten paid and my dad had spent all the money and then was like I'm leaving so my mom's family supported her because the divorce was actually initiated by my dad which is interesting poor mom Hmm. like I don't know what she was sticking out for you know her family supported her and helped her like get on her own but my dad just restarted with like nothing from his own accord like I don't even know I couldn't tell you where all the money went I couldn't even guess at the time so yeah we were living in this house and then he met his second wife because I didn't have a bed essentially like my dad is interesting he would play victim all the time and he would schmooze people Mm. and he would be like oh my daughter doesn't have a bed like we got divorced it was horrible this horrible divorce and so secret santa that year ended up being his second wife she bought me a bed and it was this really cute bed and like all this stuff she did all this really kind things for our family and he ended up dating her and they ended up getting married like a year later oh wow yeah that's fast and then (laughs) yeah it was fast she was 30 at the time 29 at the time I believe he was in his 40s Mm. 42 I want to say 42 I could be totally off but there was there was a significant age difference and it was talked about Mm -hmm. and then from there just got even got even worse so when he was married to her they moved a few times and all while this is going on like my abuse is not being talked about ignored nothing I don't think anything was ever said Except for like, sometimes my dad would like make comments like when she wasn't around and be like, you know, well, just things about like dressing a certain way or whatever. Like, I don't even remember. Putting the blame on you in a sense. Yeah. Like if you didn't dress this way, then it wouldn't happen type shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm like, four-year-olds don't (laughs) like you're dressing me. (laughs) That doesn't apply. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's another layer of stuff because my family is part of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints other known as mormon also known as mormon so uh, you know there's just a lot of things like purity culture and but it was stupid because my dad was gross and would like order like dirty magazines like sports illustrated and all these things and he would be like talking about the women sometimes he would show us the women and then be like that's what you should aspire to be but then also on the other hand be like but you can never like ever have sex until you're you know until you're married you know and like that was you know that's an that's a value for some people for some people it's not but like telling that to your child who was sexually abused Mm -hmm. in your house it doesn't resonate well it doesn't in fact it makes no sense so for me it there was a lot of shame and I thought that like I was like there must be something wrong with me then this must Mm -hmm. be my fault Meanwhile, my dad would like walk around with my brother when he was like 13 and 14 and like point to women on the street and be like, look at that girl's booty. Like, look at that woman. And just like, 
just disgusting stuff. And like, I didn't realize how abnormal this was until I went to college. Mm. And I, <laughs> I went to a school, I went to BYU, Idaho. Wow. Right. So it's, <laughs> so it's like, um, is that predominantly white? Is that like, yeah. Oh yeah. But I've yeah. never been anywhere that, well, I have, but like, you know, most of my time has been spent in places that were predominantly white. Utah's yeah. predominantly white. West Jordan, though, is more diverse. There's like, it's a big Polynesian community, which hmm. is who a lot of my mentors and good friends ended up being. And like, we had a black student unit. So I had like oh, a fun. good connection with my community. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm just kind of used to that. But yeah, BYU, Idaho, it's interesting. The people were lovely there. And I started to realize there when I like was going through counseling all that stuff that um this was not normal and it was really like now that I think about I'm like that's really nasty that's so disgusting yeah I was just so used to this behavior in my own home that I was like this is just kind of how guys guys are I guess yeah it was your normal that's all that you knew so yeah and then it took just meeting several men that were not like that you're like, wait, what's going on here? <laughs> like, you're not like dirty what? all the time. And you're not like, what is this? And uh, all of that went down. I'm trying to think like, I'm like, where am I going? Because I jumped clear ahead to college. Sure, no, it's stuff. okay. But during high school, things were kind of like that. But I started to, I started to go down my own path with my mental health. My mental health totally tanked when I was in high school mm. and I had so much go on. So we had to, it was the last time we took a move. So my dad and his second wife had to, had to foreclose on a house. And like, I didn't know that this was going on. So they are talking about, well, this is the second last time we moved. I'm so sorry. They're talking about how things are tight. Money's tight. My dad, it was the 2008 recession. My dad lost his job for two years straight he did not work and actually he didn't lose his job he quit this job and he said it was because he felt that they were doing the wrong things but I think he probably just quit before he got fired Mm. luckily the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has like a huge push for like just preparing for a time of need so food storage is big so like a lot of Mormons have like these huge stores in their basement (laughs) of food and like laundry detergent and all those things we had that so we survived for two years just off of the food that was in our basement. Wow. Um, yeah, which turned out to be a, a great thing, especially for my, you know, for my dad's poor second wife. She like had to carry the family and she didn't have a college education to rely on. She just worked and she just did her best to like, wow. you know, help us survive. And then finally, my dad gets this job in the Philippines and you know they think things are going to be good but they foreclose on the house and so I'm I could be 14 at the time 15 maybe starting 10th grade Mm -hmm. and she comes to my room it's like the middle it's like 10 o'clock at night nine o'clock at night and she says you need to pack all your stuff we're leaving tomorrow and then just closes the door and walks out we had a fraught relationship but we have since ruck inside like ourselves because we know how toxic my dad was so I tried to respect mm-hmm. her and not talk about <laughs> things with her but that was how I was informed that we were gonna have to just move so we packed all of our stuff and in one day her family came over and did everything my dad cut off his whole entire family so 
we would have never seen them. So it's not that they wouldn't have supported us. They, he just was like, we don't talk to them. And so her family came over, helped us pack the whole entire house. I don't know where my dad was because he didn't help. And then we moved into, I think, her parents' house and then stayed there for about six months. Stayed in the little, it was a sewing room and it was, they were joking about how it's not up to code because it was literally pitch black, no windows. Like oh I would just God. go in there to like sleep, but they were lovely. They helped out a lot. And it's just like, you know, watching your daughter go through that, can't imagine. So they had all that happen. And then we moved again back to the same area and they bought a house, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how. Bought another house and then we bought another car and, you know, that was around the time I'm probably getting my timelines a little bit confused, but it was around the time he got the job in the Philippines mm-hmm. and we started, he started making a, a lot of money, which is what it seemed like because we had a lot of stuff again. And so during my life, we would go through periods where we had a lot of stuff and then we had like nothing, you know, we'd get this huge Christmas with all of this stuff. They bought me a TV, they bought me a huge queen bed set and like all of this stuff. And then and then the next house, I'd be sleeping on the floor or like this next time I was sleeping in this in the sewing room at his second wife's parents' house. And then, you know, going on and on. And it was just kind of, it was so confusing as a child to be like, are we wealthy or are we poor? Like, I had no idea. I had no concept of that. I just knew that at times there was constant talk about not having enough money. And that was scary. And then at other times, there was just so much. He would bring home stuff from, like, he would shower us with gifts, bring home stuff. Took us on a limousine ride once and all this crazy stuff. So I was really confused about what this was all. And then during high school, I saw my dad. I think the schedule was six weeks in the Philippines, two weeks at home. Wow. Yeah. That's when my mental health tank after that move. And then I was going to high school and trying to figure out who I was. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had solid, solid friends, solid friends. They were there this whole time and they were like, what is going on in your house? So I was always kind of with them, but it was just a lot of ups and downs for my own self. And I started to have flashbacks to the early childhood with all of that abuse going on and then Mm. their marriage was bad and like there was a lot of anger between me and her about about my dad and you know they had two more children and they were so young they were like two or three years old during my high school years and so Mm. like it was like she was single mom in it yeah. And I was a frustrating teenager and I had like mental health wasn't a conversation that we'd ever had in my house. And I was having these horrible, horrible nightmares, horrible flashbacks. I would wake up and sweat. Sometimes I would stay up all night in my closet, like crazy. Like I would just like stay up all night and like paint my nails and then peel off all the nail. But like I was just mm. going nuts. <laughs> and I didn't know that I was having all these symptoms of PTSD, like pretty severely. On top of that, I had a friend, she passed away in a car accident when I was 17. And then that same year, I think later that year, my grandmother passed away and she was a sweetheart. So from my mom's side, she was just working three jobs, getting no child support from my dad, who was supposedly making all this money. 
so I didn't get to see her very often. I had to stay at my dad's and then, you know, I'd go see her and, you know, we had a really positive relationship, but she just wasn't home a lot. So I'd just Mm -hmm. kind of be alone. And while I was at my dad's house, even though my dad wasn't physically there, so it was really just his second wife, me and the kids, and then my mom. And so it was a lot going on. And finally, I, I think my nervous system reacted so strongly to all of that. I got so incredibly sick. Like, wow. They thought it was meningitis. It wasn't. They thought it was mono. It wasn't. I think it ended up being something similar to meningitis. I don't remember. They couldn't quite put their hands on it, but they gave me the medication they would have given for meningitis. And they were like, go to the hospital if it gets any worse. And I had these boils on my face. And I didn't go to school for like three weeks. I, I I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do anything. I was taking like a college math class and I don't know why because I was never good at math but I ended up (laughs) failing a semester that and not getting the college credit that's fine I still could get high school credit and I still you know was able to graduate and everything but it was not pretty at all and my dad was emailing me (laughs) because we didn't have the phone didn't work in the Philippines but he was emailing me how I had to stay at his house to help take care of my my sisters that were there and it was just a lot of manipulation of why I needed to be at his house but I was like I think I want to go just like stay at mom's I don't want to like stay at your house anymore there's no point in me being there your second wife doesn't like me being there it was just hard for me to be there and so eventually I left my dad's house there was a fight I left called my friend I was like sobbing it was like so dramatic teenage so I'm like sobbing after this fight and I call my friend and she's like mom Tanisha's crying I've never heard Tanisha cry ever and so she (laughs) takes her mom's minivan to my house I'm like packing bags and while my dad's second wife was like not looking I like ran out the door with my stuff and like got in the car and we're like drive drive and then things were just so ugly at that point my dad's second wife just told my mom like she's not coming back like don't let her come back I had half the clothes at there at the other house and a lot of stuff that I cared about at their house but I ended up getting it later a couple years later but it was just a couple years so did you a while did you move out out like you were gone after that point yeah I just never came I just never was allowed to go to go back I I was allowed to come get my stuff I think it was like a year later it was like the next time it was like my dad had come back like a couple times before that or whatever. And he didn't come see me. I remember he came back for two weeks and like didn't come see me that time when I was gone. And he was telling me that he was mad at the second wife. Just became terrible. That's kind of puts the end cap on some of that. But then I found out, you know, my dad had been having an affair and had a new family in the Philippines so I guess during all that time my dad and my uh, and his second wife ended up getting divorced but all during that time he was telling me like oh she cheated on me and that's why everything happened the way it did that's why she kicked you out like he made up all these lies about her saying that she kicked you out because she was cheating on me and she wanted to move the new man in, which was totally false. 
there's part of the story that I won't tell <laughs> because it's not my story to tell, but basically the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints keeps better records than our government because he got legally married in the Philippines and they didn't say anything to the U.S. There's no legal issue with that, I guess, somehow, but the church hmm. was like, sir, you got married to another person. We can't have that. And so he was excommunicated from the church because they found out wow. and like I'm like I don't know how you manage like I don't I don't do you know if that's legal like <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> I have no so idea. he was already married he was married to his second wife while he got married to the other lady mm-hmm. so I think he got married got to the other lady yeah yeah so she found out and then they got divorced so what happened is it was like oh, it was like 2016 wow. 2017 you know the church finds out and lets his second wife know somehow and excommunicates him and all of that drama goes down and then they ended up getting divorced for obvious reasons and Mm -hmm. during this time it's so interesting so during this time I'm in college and I had worked really hard saved up and I was doing really well on my own I was in therapy making so much progress and I didn't know this information so my dad's saying that he's homeless and it's because his second wife kicked him out. Well, obviously she kicked him out. So he's asking me for money. And up until this time, he was actually like, you know, there's a lot of things he didn't do, but he did help pay for rent. Did he lie to my mom and her husband? Yes. He told them that he was paying my tuition. So they didn't pay my tuition. They So I was on federal aid and mm-hmm. loans and stuff. And he was claiming me on the taxes and all this stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was under his, like, income. So to say that he didn't make a lot of money. And so I could qualify for financial aid is essentially how it worked out. But also, he was telling my stepdad and my mom that he was paying tuition. And they probably would have helped out with tuition mm-hmm. if it weren't for that situation. And so all that's going on, I'm, you know, I'm about to get married me and my husband, who was my who was my fiance at the time, were just kind of like trying to figure things out. And I'm like, look, my dad's homeless, and like he's asking me for like four hundred dollars, and I don't really have very much money, but I could give him that. But that means like I can't pay my rent this semester. You know, can you help me out? So my husband, or fiance at the time, paid my rent, and I paid my dad money, which was like this. <laughs> now I'm like, ah, I should have found out all this sooner. I don't know what he used it for. Couldn't tell you. He asked me for money again that year. I was like, I can't give him any money. I'm getting married, all of this stuff. And, you know, we had plans and he was, he did not talk to me as much after I didn't give him money. And so that's why I'm like, okay. Like that's when I started to get like kind of discarded because I wasn't mm-hmm. serving him. So I won't throw the word narcissist around just because I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that fits. I actually think my hu- I think my dad's actually a uh, an undiagnosed borderline personality. Mm. And I think that because, so this is where me and his second wife might disagree. I think that because, right, obviously I'm a therapist and my dad doesn't meet the diagnostic criteria for a narcissist specifically because I remember he would have erratic emotional shifts oh. and he was very open about those shifts. So he would be like sobbing for a long period of time. Like he went through a huge depressive episode. Mm-hmm when he was unemployed and he would like cry every day and he had like these intense emotions he would be like super angry and then he would be and narcissists are 
a type that won't show emotional vulnerability. Yeah. Unless it gets them the attention they need. So it just depends. But I really saw that as like a genuine depression Mm -hmm. because of course you're unemployed and you're going to be struggling. And I don't think narcissists diagnostically have that emotional empathetic capability. At least technically they shouldn't. So that's why I think, you know, my dad's severely mentally ill and, you know, jerk, right? So Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of an asshole. But I don't know if I'd label him quite a narcissist just because he I feel like he doesn't meet the criteria the way the way I would see it but I guess you know it could be some tendencies Um, rather mm -hmm. yeah definitely he started to kind of discard me and you know not talk to me and then I would text him and like you know be like hey you know do you want to be in the wedding so with ceremonies through the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints we get married in what's called a temple and we see marriage as like an eternal thing. And in the temple, basically you just have, you know, who's there in the priesthood who can witness. Hmm. And then you do the ceremony and then you go and then you have your own reception and you do all the party stuff kind of like outside of the church. But my dad was supposed to be like a witness and Hmm. he was like, yeah, I can show up. I can do this. Like I'm, you know, planning on going so excited for you. And then the day of my wedding, he texted me and well, actually he didn't text me. My husband got on the phone and was like, Hey, just one reminder. Like we're going in at 8am, you know, be ready. Um, this is the door you go through all this stuff. And then he texts back and he's like, I am so sorry. I've been crying all night. I cannot witness the wedding. We're like freaking out because I was like, we are down a witness. And so it's just, it's nice. My stepdad stepped in and witnessed the wedding it was all fine but yeah he didn't come he didn't say why at the time I did not know he was excommunicated and Mm. so he couldn't go you know came to the reception as it was really demanding about like having a dance and he wanted to go back and do pictures just like all this stuff and he was not there the entire day our wedding was in the morning at 8 a.m like the actual ceremony and then we had like a lunch and then we went to our reception at like started like 6 p.m. or something like that. He wasn't there the whole day. He showed up at like the middle of the reception. He, he wasn't even there at the beginning. Shows up at like seven, brings my sisters and is like demanding all this attention and stuff. And he's like, I am the father of the bride. And just like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's just kind of a good thing Mormons don't really drink. So <laughs> there was no alcohol at the party Thank to just God. like throw things even more into a loop. Yeah. But my husband just stepped in and was like, you have no right to talk to your daughter that way and he just like he was like you can't talk to her like that a b you have no right to come demanding things because you literally deadbeat no showed her like he like gave us he was like you know (laughs) finally put him in his place (laughs) yeah people didn't really see but like so he ended up leaving he was upset about it and then over the years we've just kind of talked less and less and I haven't really Mm -hmm. talked to him I haven't seen him for probably about three years now and wow. yeah, we don't communicate. He, I think, texted me happy birthday this year. And that was odd because he didn't last year or the year before. <laughs> hmm. You know what I mean? So I kind of just haven't blocked. I just don't want, don't want him in my life. For me, emotionally, it really, I had really grieved like not having a dad. Because yeah. for me being adopted and right. also being, I was transracially adopted. So my parents are white. I really had, took me a long time to like understand like our differences and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. And I perceived 
my family as pretty okay until I was an adult and could have all the information, the outsider information and look back and be like, oh, that was really messed up and be able to sever those ties. And I just had come to realize that it was super unhealthy and I mm-hmm. wasn't protected by him at all. So yeah, I just kind of cut him out. In fact, it's so interesting. So I, I remember there was a time in therapy where I had told my therapist like what had happened. And I remember this is going back a little bit. While I was in high school, I had told Bishop of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints what happened. I had told him and it was an interesting conversation because I'd gone in like thinking it was like a confessional. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. was like, oh, I need to like talk about some things. And I was feeling like it was my fault, right, that this situation happened, that I was abused. So I go in and I talk to him and I tell him, I'm like, well, yeah, when I was a kid, like my abuser was doing this, this and this. And he like he told me that it was normal to be like touching other people. You know what I mean? Your abuser my told age. you that. Yeah. Yeah. My bishop was like, okay, not normal. <laughs> Just going <laughs> to let like, you know right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, you know, abuse is never your fault. Mm. And he's like, but I might have to report this to CPS. Like, this is pretty severe. And he's like, has this ever been reported? You know, just wow. checking. And I was like, I don't think so. Because I really don't recall if a social worker went to our house or not. And, mm-hmm. you know, the next time I met with him, he said, you know, DCFS has no record of any report. So I'm going to report it. I'm nice. just letting you know. My parents were notified. And at the time it was, when I say my parents, it was my dad's second wife and my dad. Mm-hmm. And my dad didn't tell his second wife at all anything. So she thought that I had like gone to school and said that I was being abused. And oh, so she was really, or yeah. 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 And she was like really angry at me. She was, she was like, you're ruining my life. You're like, she had said at one point, like, you're going to get my kids taken away. Like, what are you doing? Like, she was really fraught about it because my dad was lying to her about it. Mm-hmm. And then my dad and I, this is where the therapy conversation comes in. Cause it's telling me therapist that my dad and I, like he came into my room and he sits on the bed and he's like, what happened? Like, what did you tell the bishop? Like, why did the bishop call CPS? And I said, well, it was because when I was being sexually abused and my dad said, he stopped and he said this, his reaction was, hmm, I didn't think you remembered that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Horrifying, right? You're like, that's beyond horrifying. Your mm-hmm. parent figure already doing all these fucked up things, but then that was the response. Mm-hmm. He was just like, I didn't think you remember that. After that, he was kind of like, Well, what did you say? Told him like vaguely, but then I kind of got some gusto and I was like, I don't have to tell you everything that he said. Oh, thank God and you my said dad, that. <laughs> yeah. My dad did that well, creepy religious thing that you see in movies that was like, I am a priesthood holder. You have to tell me and I was like actually no I don't yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and I was actually like no the bishop at church actually says like I don't have to tell you guys anything I tell him it's confidential you know this was when you were in high school is when you went to the to the church to Mm -hmm. finally I was like I was like 17 yeah and what made you finally decide is that when your mental health was kind of at its worst so you were like I have to tell somebody 
yeah I was like I need to get help and the thing is at the time like I was even thinking I didn't know that like that would happen I didn't know mm-hmm. about reporting laws or anything so right like, of course why would is- you yeah yeah and I was like telling my bishop about the night and I was like I'm having like nightly nightmares and they won't go away and like all of this stuff and I told him the backstory I was like oh yeah I was abused and I like oh by the know, way I would tell people <laughs> I would tell yeah. people like, oh yeah, this happened to me. You know what I mean? So casually. And like, I'm glad that he was the one that did something about it. Cause nobody yeah. else was like, I think people have a, uh, like a, an idea that maybe it's already been dealt with as someone so easily willing to talk about it or they're like, oh yeah, like this girl's fine. Right. Cause she could just talk about it or, you know what I mean? I would, mm-hmm. you know, my close friends knew and then yeah I I think I don't think my teachers knew but close friends knew and you know I talk about it with people who had similar similar stories Mm. we kind of like bonded about that but it's pretty amazing that you were able to talk about it after like still not having really worked through any of it Mm -hmm. like you said you know when people usually talk about stuff like that so transparently you do kind of assume that they've been in therapy or that they've sought out help or something like that how did Mm -hmm. you end up getting in therapy because it sounds like you started therapy at a very young age did your mom help you get access to therapy so okay so that's the weird thing I don't really remember I remember you know I remember being really young I remember there was all these issues we had gone to the church before when I was a little kid and I think they were talking about that they're very serious adults I was very little and then I, and then I think the church referred us out somewhere for therapy. Oh, wow. And I remember doing like, you know, the body boundaries with this therapist and play mm-hmm. therapy for a brief time. And then, you know, I remember not going back after a while. And then I didn't go to therapy at all between anything. So like, I think, mm-hmm. I think I went to therapy. I had to have been like, maybe like I had to be really young I had to have been like five or six or something when you were in therapy for the first time yeah I had to have been like a little little kid and then there was like this big gap until I was like yeah until I was like 16 or 17 and then when my dad had gotten remarried and my mom had noticed like I was just really distressed about the environment finally probably my junior year in high school she was like okay I'll find somebody for you. I definitely think you should go. Like she, that's amazing that she picked up on that and was willing to support you through that or help you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I just, it was a mess and it started to seep into being at my mom's house. So like, I would like lash out in anger, Mm. like at my mom, like I feel so bad. Like I would just yell at her. Like she would like ask me to do something and I would like scream at her. She was like, like, what the hell? (laughs) What is going on? (laughs) And then I would like scream Mm. and just unload and then start hysterically crying. Oh, so So she she knew. She knew. Yeah. She's she's like, like, oh Jesus. Yeah. She was like, you need some help. So Mm. put me in therapy then. And, and then after that, I was a lot better at being able to talk about things and That's amazing that she was so aware and like Mm -hmm. willing to try to understand somewhat to like why you were or had the ability to like recognize that that was out of character for you Mm -hmm. and not take it personally and be like, okay, like we got to do something about this. Like you need to 
to talk to someone. What year was that? I'm curious because um we're like that was probably like 2014 no okay. no 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 that's too that's too late because i would have been graduated from high school so probably 2011 wow 2012 yeah and i even feel like still then i still feel like therapy was fairly taboo you know yeah it definitely i think it definitely was you know it's weird because i remember we go to <laughs> like out in west valley um so if you're from utah you know what west valley <laughs> you know about west valley and so it's just kind of there's parts of west valley that are a little rough we went to this therapist's office it was like in the oldest building i've ever mm-hmm. seen and it was like you had to climb you had to go downstairs into like a basement and oh, then it wow. was like dark They're like where <laughs> so, are you taking me mom what the hell is this yeah <laughs> yeah so but yeah she was a good good therapist really good for like beginning stuff she was the one that pointed out to me she was like okay so like you were adopted and like she basically pointed out to me that my whole family was bonded by trauma because of my dad and so at the time I didn't get that though now I get that because I have (laughs) like she was like this this therapist like telling a 16 year old yeah so you're like trauma bonded to your siblings and you're you're you're, (laughs) what and what does that even mean? What are you talking about? After grad school, I had this memory and I was like, oh, got it. That now helps. There was a lot of, why won't you just listen? Like, why won't you just like calm down? Why do you get so angry all the time? Like, why are you so emotional? Because I wouldn't listen to, you know, I definitely was totally defiant with my dad's second wife. I was defiant. I mean, he could get me to listen because I didn't like the consequences sometimes. Like I didn't like his, like he would just scream and tirade but for the most part I could I don't know I think there was a different power dynamic because he would often use the kids to get what he wanted in the marriage so sometimes he would give us different rules than our the female would it doesn't matter who it was it could have been my mom or his second wife or whoever like he would just be like you don't have to do what she says you're fine so often I didn't even have to be defiant toward my dad would not listen I would just be a frustrating child to parents and parents often don't recognize that either as like a sign of abuse is like defiance defiance in people with trauma is like probably the best place to be because there's some people that are like just so scared that they won't Won't take any action or don't take any action you know Mm -hmm. um they feel that the trauma of confronting their abuser is worse which I totally understand. But for me, that was just not me. I I went through that phase as probably a young child. And then I just was like pissed. And so I was like, no, screw you. I don't want to listen to, I don't want to listen to you. You're not, you're not even here. First of all, you don't understand my life. Like I was really angsty as a teenager. Like you don't know anything about me. And it was kind of true. Like it was true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then, you know, after all of that had gone down, I, was in college and college was really healing for me. I was, I had a leadership scholarship for part of the time, which was super helpful. And like, I was leading BYU-Idaho's culture association, which is so funny that I'm talking so much about the church because like in practice, I typically don't mention faith at all, just because I know that it alienates people and I know that people have religious trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't have religious trauma in that way. So the church helped me escape a lot of abuse. Which, yeah. When you said that, I, I was thinking about all the people that have had poor experiences. So I was mm-hmm. shocked that yeah. 
that was your safe haven almost like your it is really devastating to hear stories that are the opposite because my experience wasn't that but I do understand it like you hear it all the time Mm -hmm. so and it just depends on what part of any church you're in so if you're like Catholic if you're Catholic and you're in an area that the Catholic church has practiced if you're in a parish that they have set up and you've just got good people there you're good if you have a bad if you have bad people there that are going to use religion to hurt people, then you're in a bad spot. So I totally and completely understand that. And for me, that wasn't my experience. And, but, you know, I know for a lot of people like that, the church does need to step up and take action to make Mm -hmm. sure that like harm is not happening because we do have the probably most relaxed way of finding ministers. And that is called the calling. So every man in the church for the most part is priesthood. So they and just so, like, say that they've had yeah, a calling so like, and then they're in like, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's kind of just like, well, you know, somebody, pray, somebody prays about it <laughs> and you can think about however you want. And they're like, oh, I think it should be this person. And, totally. you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it really doesn't. So they really do need to do like, you know, background checks don't stop sexual abuse because it's so hard to figure out what people are doing yeah. behind closed doors. And so I'm totally on with that. Like mm-hmm. they do need to find a way, like <laughs> the justice system uses polygraphs. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to figure that out, but I'm like, yeah. So it's really devastating as a survivor to see that. And so I'm always for advocating for, for positive change in that system. But yeah, when I was at BYU-Idaho, the system there really supported me and they have they have their own kind of counseling center where they help people and the cool thing is that so they have a strict honor code like there's like no drugs no alcohol no sex like things like that so yeah no sex <laughs> like, so no wow. no it is like so strict so if you break the rules the nice thing is their counseling center will just gently refer you out to go talk to someone outside of that system so that like there's no conflict of interest and so that students don't feel like they have like, you know, this thing that they, they can't trust the person they're talking mm-hmm. to, which is cool. That is- For me, it was helpful. For some people, you know, I've always, there's always stories. And so, you know, I was part of the Student Cultural Association. It was so fun. I could be with students that were like me. It was a very white area, but I have to say, I think Rexburg is honestly the most diverse area in that part of Idaho, just because they have a big international student program where they mm. they'll help students come to the U.S. and get education here and so mm. you get to meet these cool people I got to meet these really cool people from all over so that was super fun and then you know I met my husband we got married and I graduated from there went to grad school at the only available <laughs> grad school because we at the time we couldn't move because my husband went to barber school so my husband's a really cool barber oh nice um does all the hair designs and everything <laughs> but he he was in hair school at the time. So uh, I went to a college called Northwest Nazarene. It's in mm. Nampa, Idaho, but they have an extension program in Idaho Falls, Idaho. So mm. they do a social work program and they really train you. And it's really cool because their program's really focused in social justice and nice. like social change and all those cool things. And so I learned a lot and I healed a lot because through my undergrad I studied marriage and family for nice. obvious reasons like I was like why nice. is my family so crazy <laughs> I need and more answers so... <laughs> yeah yeah and it was so fascinating That's to learn awesome. about the dynamics of the family and 
you know, what the research says about families thriving and being together and what it says about families that don't or, you know, learning about the what the research says about LGBTQ families. And it's so cool to see that, like, the research kind of mirrors and we learned a lot of Gottman's research. If you haven't heard of Gottman, if you're listening, John Gottman is a is a researcher who has developed, I think it's named the most successful marriage and family therapy in the world, has a 99% success rate from their program, how they've run it and all of that stuff. And he runs it with his wife, Dr. Julie Gottman. Super cool. John was married like two times before her and they've been married for like a hundred years now. And so BYU-Idaho kind of used a lot of that research to train us. And then when I went to grad school, I decided to switch to social work because I wanted to have a more broad study. And you do have to go to therapy in their program. Some programs don't require that, but like they require Hmm. a minimum of 10 sessions. That's cool. And so, yeah. So it was like six years of me healing from learning this research and going to therapy and I really thought I would be done going to therapy but even me and my husband went to couples like we did so much work just because my husband also has a lot of trauma he could write a book at this point (laughs) (laughs) no but I I was gonna ask you about you and your husband because I can only imagine even though you did a lot of work prior to meeting Mm -hmm. him that there would still probably be so many things that would come up throughout Mm -hmm. your experience with him due to your past traumas and obviously it sounds like through his experiences as well so you one of the tools you did was couples counseling yeah I feel so bad for our first therapy (laughs) Nathan if you're out there I'm so sorry oh my gosh so no yeah when we first got married things were rough I was Mm. like so activated I think my husband was as well so a little Mm. backstory on my husband just being respectful of him yeah he has an ACEs score of 10, which if you don't know what the ACEs are, it's yeah. a trauma scale, but it's adverse childhood experiences. And basically it's scales for every type of abuse out there, mm-hmm. physical, emotional, yeah. all the types. And he was in foster care and his biological mom was a drug addict. He doesn't rem- remember, but he does still have like, he was but, struggling at the time. Mm-hmm. There's this anger thing. Like he would just get really like, like if I would say something. And so we had to really learn how to work at that. And our first therapist (laughs) was this poor guy. (laughs) And he, uh, as a therapist, I'm like looking at him like, what were you thinking? Because he was working two jobs. He worked a 40 hour job and then came to this other clinic that we went to and worked another four hours. So he was tired. We knew he was tired. We were his 8 p.m. appointment. Whoa. And it was, it was, he did some really good work with us. It just Mm -hmm. was not a good situation. We were like, we were so activated. We should have both been in it in individual trauma therapy. Now that I look back on that, like as a clinician, I would have done Mm -hmm. things differently, but obviously he was exhausted. So, and he probably might not have like been trained in, in trauma informed Mm -hmm. quite yet, but we went in there and we would shout at each other and like the dude would observe and then be like, y'all can't do this. Like, this is so like, you need to stop talking to each other. So like, he would be really real with us. But there were times when I just would like walk out of the room and slam the door. Like we just were so fraught. Mm. Working with him helped us a lot. And then later on, we also worked with this other therapist. 
was really he was a really good masculine model for my husband that's like interesting because people like a lot of therapists are women and for my husband it was really hard to have a female therapist who would come in at him we like worked through so much it was like it was so good for him to just have someone that like really looked like him like this this therapist we went to in Idaho shout out to Jeff go see Jeff Jones (laughs) if you get a chance He's like this like super buff guy. He, he likes to go to the gym. He like bodybuilds and you know. Wow. Yeah. And he was, well, I think he's an ex bodybuilder. He was, you know, just a bigger guy with the most gentle approach. So he would do things really helpful and he would help explain to my husband. He would model that like male power. He would say, hmm. you have power as a male. You're large, you're strong. You can't talk to her that way. That's hmm. scary. I'm actually physically taller than my husband by a couple inches, mm-hmm. but like he's stocky. But Jeff really explained to my husband that I know that you get frustrated too, but just as a man, you can't show your anger in that way because as a man, you have that power and it's like what you do with your masculinity. Like you have to learn how to be gentle mm-hmm. and learn how to, you know, you have to treat a woman a certain way. And also just helping understand like where I was coming from this is activating for you and helped him with some of the stuff just with childhood and feeling like, you know, his mom just could never get better. I think that was a huge thing is like, she would call him when he was younger and promise she'd come back and like just Mm. typical, typical things for addiction, unfortunately. But, you know, Jeff helped him work through a lot of that. Sometimes I would just go in and complain to Jeff about Mm. my husband. (laughs) Like he did this thing where he'd have us come in like swap so it'd mm. be one of us and the other of us every other week and just like work individually as well as together and it worked out really well it was a great approach and Jeff's like just such a cool guy he's the kind of therapist that he gets out of the office like he'll take his clients to go grab a drink at the <laughs> not to like a bar but like, you yeah. know the gas station he has kids he plays with them he's so cool he has a good guitar in his office He's the type of therapist I want to be. Like, he's just, that really helped us. And like going through all of that, we've been through a lot of therapy. I've also done my own inner work. Most survivors are constantly being told to forgive. And I don't think that you have to forgive the person that hurts you out of an obligation. I just don't think it's the right thing to tell someone who survived horrific events that they have to forgive. But for me, that was a huge thing. And I like, I did a lot of soul work to just be able to forgive them. And to me, forgiveness, I define that as not having ill will or feeling towards the person that has hurt me anymore. So that just meant for me, I had to let go of the anger. And it took mm-hmm. me a long time to not be angry anymore. And to and a lot of that anger was affecting my marriage too. And that was stupid. Like, <laughs> like I would be mad at Chad about something that he didn't even do it was just living in me. And so I had to work Mm -hmm. a lot about letting go of the anger and just being able to say like, even for my dad, I just Mm -hmm. had to release him from my daily life. And for me, it was, okay, Tanisha, you are literally up at two in the morning because you're so angry about your damn abuser. Mm -hmm. You could be sleeping right now. You know who's sleeping? They are, but you're not. They still have some control over you. 
That's what it felt like to me. So for me, I was like, I don't want them having that control over my life anymore. So I gave that up and I, I do forgive them. I forgive every person that has abused me, who who has hurt me. It takes time though. Like I Mm -hmm. didn't know, like there were a couple of years where I was like not forgiving toward my husband or not forgiving me. And I was just like angry about. And rightfully so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People that have their own trauma that then project their trauma onto people such as yourself and others it's just this mm-hmm. vicious cycle of and then yeah it really just fucks a lot of people up when it's it's, it's a selfish act do you do you think that's safe to say for people mm-hmm. to yeah because you've done yeah. so much work there are people that have done so much work to release that but what are those people doing the people that mm-hmm. have hurt people Exactly. Healing is just our own responsibility. And so when we start projecting it, right. And I've hurt people too. I'm not going to say that I haven't or that Mm -hmm. I haven't been triggered or activated by someone who Mm -hmm. didn't deserve it. You know what I mean? So definitely it's, you have to watch yourself and you you do have that responsibility and that's okay. Just being able to let go of the hurt that's inside of you and move on. But honestly, like everybody has their own journey with that. Some people never forgive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. I think it's just up to you what that looks like to you. Mm-hmm. It's a huge process and it's exhausting. And I think that it's healing. Is it fair anyway? Like healing is facts, right? It sucks. God, it's the worst. <laughs> like imagine yeah. a burn victim healing. Cause I feel like that's the only thing physically comparable to trauma mm. is because it gets ugly before it gets better. Like it gets so it's so painful and there's so much going on. And that whole journey is so difficult. And then once you're on the other side, you still have to kind of go back and make sure you got to check yourself and make sure that your work is really done. You know, like even now, after I've graduated, after I've done all my own healing work, after everything, like I still have things that I work on. So I still definitely go see a therapist like monthly and just to make sure I'm okay. Cause I never want to put my own burdens on clients never want to feel like when clients are talking to me I never want to be stressed out from them right when you go from being like a survivor to being a person who is like a healer and then being a helping healer like that's a whole other thing like helping other people heal you can't just like do that and be totally dysregulated and broken inside you have to still do that work so that people are safe with you mm-hmm. Very well said, because I think that there unfortunately are so many therapists out there who don't recognize or understand that fact, and that's very harmful. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like you're doing more harm than good, even if you have the best intentions. Mm-hmm. Being a therapist when you're trying to help people that have been through their own shit, but you're not actively working on yourself mm-hmm. is not good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, like you said, healing is very painful, very uncomfortable, but it's worth it. And it's never going to end. That Mm -hmm. chapter of your healing process will end or morph into something else because we're always going to be going through things in life. I always want to emphasize that through your healing journey, it's a matter of gaining the tools and the education to be able to support yourself when you are triggered or when similar things from your past do come up like you said, so that you don't react in a similar toxic way, you know, mm-hmm. so that you're not projecting so that you're, you're able to filter it out in a healthy way instead. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah, like healing's a forever thing. 
percent. I commend you so much for getting into therapy and like actually soaking it in and utilizing it at such a young age because there are so many people and I myself and then I just actually talked to someone recently who's been through a lot of shit and they even admitted the same thing that I did when like when we were in high school we had the privilege and the access to therapy we didn't take it seriously Mm -hmm. because we weren't emotionally ready I guess to face what we were going through we didn't understand whatever the reason may be but Mm -hmm. for you to actually like take it in and use it and then continue to use it as a therapist that's a lot of work (laughs) people (laughs) gotta realize that is a lot of work especially being you know a sexual assault survivor and all the other abuse that you've been through you know it's like there's two ends of the spectrum and a lot of times you'll see people crumble under all of that trauma and pressure and it's really 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 unfortunate to see but then you'll see it or hear the stories and the experiences of those who grew from that who decided (laughs) to take that leap of faith and work on themselves I mean it's wild to hear from what you went through to see and hear where you're at now it's mind-blowing truly thank you yeah I just had to say that because (laughs) thank you so much yeah it's been you know it's been a journey and I think I think so many of us lack the hope because Mm -hmm. we're just like when you're in the thick of it it does feel like there's just like no hope and I think for Mm -hmm. me that was the driving factor to me getting help is because I was like this ain't going well. There's got to be another way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. For me, I was like, this can't be all there is left for me. Like for me, I was just kind of like optimistic. I was like, this cannot be all there is out in the world. You're like, fuck this. No, I'm not letting this. (laughs) No, 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 (laughs) no. No. Like I was that kid that was like, when I'm 18, I will like, you know, I will wait (laughs) do things. Yeah. There's so many of us that lack the hope that we need to, you know, to keep going. And I think you, know, you just have to remember that there's always going to be like a way to get better. And if you lean into that process, it is so painful, but it's so worth it. Like for me, definitely getting diagnosed with PTSD really helped me understand what was going on. And then the therapist I was working with at that time, that was when I was like 20, 21, really helped me figure out and, and process it and like really diminish that like hypervigilance factor where I was like scared all the time like there's little things now that I do that I'm like wow impressed because I used to not be able to do this so like one day I was at the library and I allowed a man to walk behind me without looking behind myself like without being like what are you doing you know what I mean like I used to be kind of so hyper vigilant that if if someone was walking behind me I would move Mm -hmm. and wait for them to like pass or I would just check and always kind of be looking over my shoulder Mm -hmm. And then I used to also have a lot of panic attacks and mm. they were triggered by a number of things, especially like going out in public and strangers, things like that. And so I used to have them like almost daily and now I haven't had one in about four years. So wow. yeah. Yeah. So that's like so severe to like nothing. Like I'm like, yeah, I haven't had one in a long, long time. Damn. Which people don't think if you're, you're having daily panic attacks, you're like, this That's... has never gone away. This is part of who I am. Yeah. Like you're like, there's, this is it. Like, this is who I am. This is what happens now. Mm-hmm. Daily. Yeah. You That's know. Great. Wow. Yeah. Which is like so great to say. <laughs> My husband's like, wow, you're doing so good. Cause I think 
in the beginning of our marriage yeah like I still I still would have them you know and it would just be like little little things like one time it was like the air conditioning came on too loud and I was like terrified yeah or like another time I was living in this apartment there was somebody would just like walk across like I don't even know what they were doing at night Mm. but I would be like trying to sleep and they'd be like walking across their kitchen I could not sleep because for me the abuse happened at night when I would go to bed so hearing the footsteps to the door I was so (laughs) triggered by that yeah like I would go to the neighbor and be like I have some fuzzy socks for you tiptoe okay <laughs> like you cannot do this to me but um shut the fuck up <laughs> but yeah so now none of that stuff is a problem um, for me at all and honestly all it's been is a lot of therapy a lot of healing for me spirituality is obviously like important I think that looks different for anyone for you mm-hmm. it could be the earth it could be the universe it could be science it could be nothing mm-hmm. but whatever gives you a feeling of like purpose and meaning in your life even though you don't have control things come around. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's helped me just seeing like, okay, sometimes things are really bad. And I just trust, I trust whatever's out there to just take care of. That's how I manage client work too. Is like when Mm -hmm. I have clients that I'm like, wow, this is a lot. I'm worried about you. I feel like the universe has its way of helping people Mm -hmm. get through. Mm -hmm. Like, it's so amazing to be a survivor working with survivors because like Mm -hmm. you guys are amazing you like don't think that you're amazing but like you guys make your progress on your own like it's nothing to do with me helping you 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 got this and like you really do and if you don't you pick up the phone and you call me or you call and that's someone. still a way to work through it that they wouldn't have mm-hmm. normally done yeah so exactly and so it's just so amazing to see like how resilient people really are yes. and they just have no idea and it's yeah. so cool yeah that's definitely an epiphany like a an awakening almost that I had like a few months ago was realizing mm-hmm. just how powerful we are. And what mm-hmm. you said just a moment ago about, you know, the control aspect of life. I don't know why, but it's just a human being, human nature kind of thing for us to always want to feel as though we're in control. And even mm-hmm. though we're not typically in control of things that are going to occur or happen to us or, you know, things that we're going to experience, we are in control of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like people exactly. have to realize that we are in control of our actions. We are in control of what we do and how we react. So that is what is so cool. Cause we actually do have control. If we allow ourselves to go through the process of healing therapy, doing, you know, the work to, work on our traumas or the things that we battle with daily like that is that is a part of like being in control of you you know what I mean so it's just it's pretty like that in of itself is should be motivating and empowering and like holy shit like you know what I can (laughs) do a lot more than I I think right like I actually can do a lot more and the more I feel like you trust yourself you know the not the easier it will be to handle the curveballs, but like kind of because you'll know what to do, you know? Yeah. Or if you exactly. don't know what to do, you'll figure it out with using a resource of some kind, which is still knowing what to do in a sense. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's just really, it's really cool um, to think of it like that, that we actually do have the power and the control to. Yeah 
protect ourselves, to support ourselves. Like it's all within us. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, we have exactly. that intuition and yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and being very, very vulnerable and sharing your story and just being very transparent about the things that have happened to you. You gave a lot of detail and backstory and background. And again, storytelling is so incredibly powerful because someone could come on here and give tips and tricks and advice. But once people hear what actually happened, then they can start to be like, oh shit, like I've gone through this. This sounds eerily familiar or I know someone who experienced something similar to this. And then that's when it really hits home. And I think through the storytelling aspect of people's mental health journeys or their lives, that's what inspires and encourages positive change and also makes people feel like they're way less alone because they're like, okay, cool. Like I'm not the only person on the planet who has had this type of abuse or who has gone through this thing or whatever, you know, and it can be a very, very powerful thing. So again, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything with myself and the listeners. Yeah, no problem at all. You know, I hope that my story can, can help people. And so, yeah, like I just always want to be inspiring people and showing up in a way that's helping more than harming so there have been times like there have been it's funny because I was so hesitant about telling this story for a long time Mm. just because I'm like well like when you're trained as a therapist they're like don't talk about your own stuff because Mm. it'll stress out your clients and so and there's like a there's like a a balance right like yeah yeah if you want to relate to them that's one thing but like we definitely don't want to just like throwing it all out there but for me you know this is not we're not in therapy right now so I feel like Mm -hmm. this is okay and I finally was able to say, you know, I think this is an important enough story to tell people so that they can be inspired. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I'm, again, I'm just so proud of you for all the work that you've done to become the best version of yourself. And also for you to be able to recognize that none of that shit was your fault. Not a single thing. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Props to you. Cause again, life is fucking hard. (laughs) Yeah. It is challenging. But it's so beautiful to see people come out on the other side. So, yeah. Thank you. So I guess my last question uh, for people that want to follow you or if they're living in the Utah area and want to book an appointment with you, where can they find you on social media or online? Okay. So you can find me at Bound by Tanisha, find my Instagram, and then I'll be coming out with like an online course to kind of help people who are new to the trauma journey or just like need more help outside of the therapy room working through some things. And so I'll be coming out with that in January. And then you can also find me, just go to my Instagram at found by Tanisha, go to the links in my bio. If you want to see the stuff, just because that's the easiest way to do it. You don't have to write down a web address or anything like that. And then if you want to book an appointment with me, so right now, if you're catching this in January, I'm not taking any more clients, unfortunately. But I will be in the summertime. So just go to my Instagram, wait, there will be an open kind of registration. And what I'm going to be doing is more of a 12 week situation where you come and do more of an intensive for 12 weeks and work through some real stuff. And that'll be in the summertime. So just stay tuned for that. Right now, it's just a lot to do. All the things that I do with the online stuff and content and 
all of that fun stuff to be doing and my day job and <laughs> doing therapy outside of my day job. So I kind of pause that and I'll just be oh, doing that. Oh, that's right. You have a you have a day job. I'm too. a school counselor. Holy <laughs> so, shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny. The school found me and it's wonderful. And so, yeah, it's a great place to land. I work with kids and parents and helping with, you know, behavior and just helping with student wellness, which is a very good place for me. I love, you know, big picture or macro social work. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. And then it leaves the summer completely open and available for me to practice oh, therapy. You. And then I go back to school. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. I never thought I'd be in school, but um, for me personally, the 40 hour therapist work week is not sustainable. And I don't think it's really sustainable for any therapist. So mm-hmm. I found a job that I could do full time. And then I took clients part time up until November. And then I was like, okay, it's just better to do one job yeah, at a time it's a lot so yeah and that's how I work and I love it so <laughs> come see me in the summer I'm gonna have a, a link to the waiting list soon I'm just kind of going through picking which clinic I'm gonna be at to do that so yeah. that is so cool oh that's so neat well amazing I will link Thank everything you. in the podcast description so everyone can go directly there to find all your information as well But yeah, thank you again for joining me so much. Honestly, this was an awesome conversation. So thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're wonderful to talk to also. And I wasn't sure. I couldn't remember. Like I forgot to ask you if you were going to be leading me the whole time. And so it's wonderful because you have such a good energy to talk to that like I didn't feel like I had to be led the whole time. And I feel like you're an easy interviewer to talk to. So. Thank you. I think I've learned through the show, like how to be an active listener, like more and more, Uh you know, and also too, I did know specifically like with your story that there was a lot that needed to be told and it was important to the message. So I was just like, I'm going to let you speak your truth. And then when I need to chime in, I'm going to chime in, but yeah. Thank you again. Thank you. 